If you will join me in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, we will look this morning at verses 1 through 5 as we continue walking through the book of Galatians. Our sermon this morning is entitled, Who Has Bewitched You? And our key words for our worshipers in training are spirit, law, and faith. Now, I wonder if you've ever thought about what a community would look like if Satan were in charge. If Rinkin, Georgia were handed over to Satan and he could do whatever he wanted to do, what would that be like? Most, prob- most people probably assume that there would be mayhem, there would be unrestrained violence, there would be sexual perversions of every kind no matter where you turn, churches turned into nightclubs, Christians hauled off to jail, and certainly all of that would make sense, and all of that uh, would surely make Satan happy. But I think the late pastor Donald Gray Barnhouse gave a more accurate rendering. He said, a city taken over by Satan would be a city wherein all the bars and clubs would be shut down, not the churches. Pornography would be illegal, everything would be cleaned up and straightened up and tidy. Everyone would smile and wave. There would be politeness to everything that was said. Yes, sir, no, ma'am, would be a common response. And all the churches would be full every Sunday. However, there would be one very deceptive, distinct hallmark. Everyone would hear, know, and believe a false gospel. Michael Horton writes, It is easy to become distracted from Christ as the only hope for sinners, where everything is measured by our happiness rather than by God's holiness. The sense of our being sinners becomes secondary, if not offensive. If we are good people who have lost our way, but with proper instructions and motivation can become a better person, we need only a life coach, not a redeemer. We can still give our assent to a high view of Christ and the centrality of his person and work, but in actual practice, we are being distracted from looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. A lot of things that distract us from Christ these days are even good things. In order to push us off point, all that Satan has to do is throw several spiritual fads, moral and political crusades, and other relevance operations into our field of vision. Focusing on, focusing the conversation on us, our desires, our needs, feelings, experiences, activities, and aspirations energizes us. At least now we're talking about something practical and relevant. Now as we've worked our way through the first two chapters of Paul's letter to the Galatians, we've seen him reject the notion that there is another gospel. There is only one gospel. Now remember the Judaizers were a group of men who had come to the church in Galatia with a false gospel of Christ plus works. It was good and right that the Galatians wanted to believe in Christ the Messiah. But according to the Judaizers, they also needed to submit themselves to the ceremonial law of God to include practices like circumcision and dietary restrictions. Remember, even, even Peter and Barnabas had been tempted to walk in the way that pleased the Judaizers. 
They pulled themselves away from table fellowship with their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. But at the heart of what was going on was their looking away from Christ to the works of the flesh. Every man's assumed ability to be able to find life with God through his own works as opposed to living life with God upon the righteousness of Christ alone. Well, Galatians chapter 3 is Paul's defense of the doctrine of salvation by free grace alone. And right at the beginning of chapter 3, he identifies the true source of error creeping into the Galatian church through the Judaizers. This wasn't a simple error of a few wayward preachers. This wasn't a small mix-up that just needed a few doctrinal tweaks. This was very subtle, and yet it was very evil. It was an assault on the very truth of what God has accomplished for all who believe in Jesus Christ. So this morning we begin Galatians 3 in verse 1, and we work through verse 5. If you're using the blue ESV Bible from the seat back in front of you, you find our text this morning on page 973. Well, the first thing we should see this morning is in verses 1 through 3, and that is that spirit-filled living and sound doctrine are inseparably tied to one another. Let's read verses 1 through 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, there's no doubt about what Satan was up to in the city of Galatia. I'm sure the Judaizers were assuring everyone that their city would look a whole lot like the city we talked about earlier. A few morals here, some good manners over there, a pinch of Mosaic law, a dash of good works, all, of course, without the actual gospel. Paul opens this section with some rather strong language. Oh, foolish Galatians, what has bewitched you? Other translations say, who has cast a spell on you? The word bewitched actually means to cast an evil eye or to charm or to enchant. The idea is that something is happening through magic and spells. So Paul is telling the Galatians that in hearing and believing the teaching of the Judaizers, they have been influenced by something of a demonic evil origin. They're acting foolishly. They're lacking all spiritual discernment. And as a result, they have the inability to see that they have been led astray by Satan, away from the true God and his gospel and his righteousness. To what were they led? That's the question. Well, Paul says in verse 3, a belief that life with God is perfected by the flesh. This is the theology of the evil one. Notice how subtle it is. It's not that they are to simply believe in a gospel of works to save them. They would have seen through that. But they are to believe that they are perfected by works of the law. So the Judaizers weren't denying 
that the gospel was a gift from God through Jesus Christ. But their way of preaching the gospel had something more to it. It was subtle. It was deadly. It was pernicious. The Galatians are acting as people who have completely lost their ability to think rationally because of Satan's influence. For the believer especially, Satan doesn't come upon us directly with with grievous error. He bewitches. He asks subtle questions. Things like, did God really say that? And none of us are exempt because this is how temptation works. Whatever the sin, Satan is out to trick us. And when we feel the charming power of temptation, we should remember these words of the Apostle Paul. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? All temptation is a bewitchment, and it can bring us to spiritual folly. So Paul tells them, when we preach the gospel to you, It was so real to you that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul's explaining that as he preached the gospel to them, he painted word pictures, he gave them things to grasp in such a way that it was as if they were experiencing the very things he was saying right there in the flesh. He reminded the Galatians what the the preaching of the cross had accomplished among them. It was so powerful. It was so vivid that they could see and feel the power of the cross. Christ was set before their eyes, and all of these images came through the words that they heard through their ears. And as he preached, their hearts were seized with the beauty and the glory of Christ, with the sufficiency of his atonement for their sins, with the only hope of deliverance being Christ himself. It was that kind of preaching that God delivered them from their sins. So, so Paul is reminding them, remember what God did to save you in Jesus Christ. Remember how beautiful and glorious Christ was as I preached him to you. Do you want to do away with all of that? Are you willing to say that what Christ did was not sufficient for you? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing and faith? Well, they knew the answer to that question. So then he repeats in verse 3 what he began with in verse 1. Are you so foolish? Now, a lot of people question whether or not Paul should have responded in the way that he did. Jesus commands us in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22 to not call people fools, lest we be in danger of hellfire. But we need to know that Paul is using a completely different word than Jesus, so it has a completely different meaning. Jesus' point is that we should not use the word calling someone a fool out of disdain or hatred for them. Paul's use of the word, he uses several other times in the New Testament, and all of their contexts will give us a bit of understanding. For example, in Titus 3.3, Paul writes, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul is referring to various kinds of influence, a, the same kind of bewitchment, the same kind of influence from the evil one. 
He's saying we were unable to identify it. We were being led astray by Satan, away from God, away from his word, away from his ways. This is the very thing Paul says about those who are not in Christ in Ephesians 2. Where he writes to the Christians, he says, All of us once walked following the prince of the power of the air prior to our conversion. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So you see, there is this work of the evil one to blind the minds of people that they may not see and behold and understand and love and cherish the true gospel of Christ. So when we put it all together, Paul is saying to the Galatians, have you been blinded? Have you been made foolish by Satan? Has he really bewitched you to think that you are perfected by the flesh? And he's getting at a very critical matter here. I think we miss a lot of times because we forget about the reality of spiritual forces arrayed against us. If the gospel is what the Bible says it is, and we believe that's true, it is the power of God unto salvation, and it conquers Satan and his dominion over the lives of God's people. And so here's the key. Satan's only hope is to get people to believe that the actual message of the gospel is something other than what it truly is. That is his only hope to knock believers off their foundation and to keep non-believers from hearing and seeing and understanding the gospel. And that's how one can be made foolish. That's how one is bewitched. And that's what Paul saw going on in the churches in Galatia. And he was very concerned. But this goes on to show us the profound importance of living life with the Spirit, with sound doctrine. Now, oftentimes Christians opt for one or the other. Some are looking simply for religious experience. They want to feel something. They want to be moved emotionally. So their emphasis is on living a Spirit-filled life without any kind of doctrinal foundation at all. They're easily tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, so long as it sounds good and feels good. Now, others emphasize the importance of doctrine to the exclusion of experiencing any kind of communion with God whatsoever. And so they may be able to sniff out heresy a mile away. They might be able to describe some finer points of theology and all of its nuances, but they are bitter, they are unforgiving, they are cold, and they are harsh with others because their life with God is purely intellectual. But Paul provides the remedy here. In verses 1 and 2, know, understand, believe, trust in, and rest in the gospel. And get it so deeply ingrained in your heart and your mind that it is as vivid as if it is all happening right here before us. And then what? Verse 2, we live by the Spirit. You see, the relationship, the doctrinal truth of the gospel and the Spirit's application of that gospel to our lives by faith. It's the only way that we can ever hope to keep ourselves from being bewitched. We must embrace experiential Christianity that is rooted in sound doctrine. 
The Christian who is able to walk faithfully and not be swayed is the Christian who has communion with the triune God by knowing and trusting and loving God's word in such a way that it transforms the entire person in thought, in speech, and in behavior. The Galatians seem to have had a true experience of the Spirit. Paul doesn't deny that at all. But they were unwise. They were undiscerning because their doctrine was weak. And so they were led astray by the evil one through a small nuance that they could not spot, but that nuance was deadly. I hope that as God's people that we would all want our hearts to be overwhelmingly full of God's grace and love and truth. That we would be aglow with his glory because we set ourselves to know all that we can know about God and his word and his work. I hope we don't just settle for knowledge, that we not just settle for experience, that we want experiential life with God founded in sound doctrine and practice. This is how we're kept from being bewitched. Well, Paul goes on to explain one of the devastating realities of the Galatians being bewitched. He explains that uh, if we are depending on works of the flesh, we nullify the work of God. Let's look in verses 4 and 5. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, the word translated suffer in the ESV is not entirely agreed upon by scholars. Given that there is no historical evidence suggesting that the Galatians were ever actually persecuted or had any widespread suffering in the first century, I think the alternative translation of the word to mean experience is better suited. It fits the context better. So Paul is now going to argue with the Galatians from the perspective of their own experience, what they have encountered as a result of God's work in their lives through the gospel. So the question is, did you experience so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? The Galatians knew firsthand the power, the life-changing power of Christian conversion. They had been transformed by the gospel. They heard the gospel. They were given the gift of faith from the Lord. They knew of God's grace. It changed their lives completely. They were new creations. Their minds were renewed. Their minds were set on the things above and not on the things of this world. They had all watched God work in and through them and their brothers and sisters far more abundantly and beyond anything they could ask or think according to the power of the Spirit. So Paul focuses in on the Galatians' experience of God and he forces them to face the reality of what believing the Judaizers' heir really means. He says, did you experience so much for nothing? The work of God, the transforming power of the gospel, the new lives that they were all experiencing, was it all in vain? 
If they're going to turn away from the truth, if they're going to embrace the, che- the teaching of the Judaizers, they will simply be taking on a different form of the false ideas that they had been rescued from when they believed the gospel. So then what would be the point of it all? What was the point of all they'd experienced? The experiences he's referring to are the things he points to in verse 5. Have you seen so many miracles? Have you enjoyed in abundance and variety the gifts of the Holy Spirit? All attesting to the truth of the gospel? Have you experienced all of this in vain? When God gave you the Spirit and worked miracles among you and in you, was it all as a result of your yielding obedience to the Judaizers' law, or was it as a result of your having heard and believed the gospel? Well, they knew the answer. But this goes back to the very same thing Paul was addressing in verse 2, only slightly different. In verse 2, the issue was receiving the Spirit of God. Verses 4 and 5 are pointing to the actions that follow. Having received the Spirit, now they're doing works of faith. So the issue in verse 5 is God's working in their midst. Remember, we saw last time in chapter 2 in verse 21 that Paul argued that it nullifies the grace of God if we are looking to the law instead of Christ for righteousness. He said, if we can be made righteous through law-keeping, then Christ died for no purpose. So the issue in chapter 2 was salvation. It was righteousness. Now in verse 5 of chapter 3, he's dealing with the fruits of our justification. But he's using the same kind of argumentation. Is all that is done around you and in you and through you because of your law keeping? Is that why all of these things are happening? If so, all of it is in vain because it all points back to you and not to the spirit within you. And not to Christ who has saved you. There's no doubt that the Bible teaches us again and again and again, in the New Testament especially, that true Christian faith evidences itself in actual, genuine works that honor God. As James writes in James chapter 2 and verse 18, Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This is the entire burden of Hebrews chapter 11 where again and again and again the writer begins with the words, by faith. And he goes on to describe some action that someone did, some venture, some achievement by these people who relied upon God. By faith, Noah moved with godly fear, prepared an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called. By faith, Sarah received strength to conceive the seed, and so on. Now this work of faith is also the fruit of the Spirit's indwelling. God supplies the Spirit by the hearing of faith, and those who receive the Spirit are empowered to accomplish good works. So you see the relationship between the two. So we could say that all of this is at the heart of godly living. Part and parcel of our lives being transformed by Christ through the gospel. Our being regenerated results in God the Holy Spirit imparting to us the gift of faith. And when this faith is exercised by the believer, we receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this power, we accomplish works of faith. 
It's nothing other than our acting and living in a way that pleases God. And that sounds small and it sounds simple, but only true Christian faith can function in this matter. The works of the law involve no gift from God, no spiritual sight, no empowering of the Spirit. Works of the law only depend on our flesh and the powerless efforts of human nature. And so often, we rely in our lives upon our gifts, upon our talents, upon our abilities, instead of relying upon the Spirit of God. We rest in what we can do. We find assurance in what we can accomplish. But only by faith, trusting in God and the power of His Spirit at work within us, only then do we accomplish those things that bring glory to God. All of our other efforts, Paul tells us, are in vain. All of our other efforts nullify the very grace of God that has been in work in our lives because they no longer rely upon it. And so any time we are tempted to find our justification in saying that I'm a good person, I do good works, I do right things, apart from the grace of God by faith in Christ, they're meaningless and useless. They are all in vain. You see, Paul is drawing out how upside down it is that the Galatians were relying on works of the flesh because not only were they transformed by God and not only was God at work in them and through them, but he was doing very clear, miraculous work all around them. The miracles of the New Testament were divine acts of authentication. They pointed to the authenticity of of Christ as God's anointed one, either directly in his own miracles or indirectly in the signs and wonders of those who gave testimony of Christ. So Paul could claim that the gospel that he preached was authenticated by the signs of an apostle. So the authentic miracles attached to Christ himself and to those through whom the gospel was first revealed. That's the miracles that he's referring to here. And as a side note, those historical miracles still serve that same purpose today, to authenticate Christ and the the scriptures which declare his gospel. So there's no need for them to be repeated. They've been recorded They've been accomplished, that we can be reminded of what he has done. But the signs and wonders witnessed by the Galatians, they had a purpose, to confirm their faith in the Christ-centered gospel preached by Paul. In the absence of faith, miracles are meaningless. They themselves do not persuade unregenerate men to believe. We see that over and over and over again in the Bible. So many times, thousands upon thousands of times, Jesus showed forth his power through miracles, and yet people refused to believe. And so we know from God's word, and it's attested specifically here in Galatians 3, and we referenced earlier in Hebrews 11, that without faith, men and women can achieve nothing of value in the sight of God. We deceive ourselves if we think we can further the kingdom of God by our own labors, our own organizing ability, our own zeal alone. 
Unless, unless our, our, our efforts are exercised by faith and empowered by the Spirit, we accomplish nothing. And that really brings us full circle this morning. Because Paul not only confronts and rebukes the Galatians, but he provides us with a sober warning. One of the reformers, lesser known, Johannes Brenz, he comments on this passage. He writes this. See from this how easy it is to fall away from Christianity into Pharisaism and popery. These Galatians had performed miracles after they had accepted faith in Christ by the preaching of the gospel, and yet they easily fell away from the teaching of the gospel and embraced a doctrine of the merit of works. We need to be very careful and to walk close to God in order to be preserved in the truth of the doctrine of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, does he who provided you with the Spirit do what he does around you and in you and through you by works of the law, or does he do it by hearing with faith? The answer is obvious. We receive the Spirit by faith, and we continue in the Spirit by faith. And our experience with God testifies to these things. And they all happen because we have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith is a living and active principle. And it works through the whole of the Christian experience. Sometimes we tend to talk about our sanctification, our, our being made holy as we progress through the Christian life. We, we tend to talk about that in such a way that it suggests that as Christians having begun by faith in Christ, we can now complete our salvation by our works. Now, there's no doubt, as we've looked at before, that we have important work to do in our pursuit of holiness and our being sanctified. But we must never pursue a life of holiness apart from Christ who works in us. Our confession of faith summarizes the Bible's teaching on this. It says this, The principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. In other words, we believe in Christ not only to be brought into the light from darkness, and not just for our justification and our being adopted as sons and daughters of God, as great as all of that is, but we also believe in Christ for our sanctification, that we may be made holy, depending upon Him. Depending upon the work of the Spirit that is at work within us, that we might grow in grace. The Spirit is working in us, applying the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ in order that we might die to sin and become more Christ-like day by day. So faith, acting on Christ, is the instrument not only of our being made right with God, but in our being made holy like God. But the role of faith in our lives is not passive We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We are to be diligent. Christ tells us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But faith responds by doing all that God has commanded while we are looking to Christ for all things. 
So if we put together all that Paul has written in these five verses in a broader context, it goes something like this. He's telling the Galatians, remember how you came to Christ in the first place. Barnabas and I came to Galatia. We preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. You heard our words. You believed the message. And God poured out his Holy Spirit among you in a very real and a very dramatic way. And the evidence of his presence was unmistakable. Moreover, none of this was conditioned on your acceptance of circumcision or your obedience to the law. You began in the Spirit. Don't now go turn back to the flesh. Don't blow all of this by following these false teachers who, by the power and influence of Satan himself, are trying to seduce you away from the work of Christ that you would believe a counterfeit gospel. That's what Paul is saying. And brothers and sisters, I hope we see this this morning, these two very important things. First, the importance of rightly experiencing God through spirit-filled lives founded upon sound doctrine. True experiential communion with God must be founded in the truth or else it's false communion. Secondly, we must realize that dependence upon the flesh for all that we do in life nullifies the work of God and it turns all of the tension and efforts into ourselves. It doesn't glorify God when we have faith but produce no works of faith. We can learn from the folly of the Galatians. That's why it's in our Bibles. Our Christian lives must continue in exactly the same way that they begin. How did you, if you're a Christian, receive the Holy Spirit? Like the Galatians, not as a reward for your obedience, but as a gift from God when we believed. It is on the same footing of grace and faith that we enjoy his ongoing ministry in our lives. That's never something that we earn. It is never something that God gives us more of because we're doing a better job. We do not perform acts of obedience to God's law and as a reward for that obedience, receive more of the Spirit's influence. Like Paul, we are to live by faith in the Son of God looking to him dependently day by day by day for everything we need, whether it be forgiveness, whether it be righteousness, whether it be a work of the Spirit to make us holy. Now, friends, some of you are in here today and you don't look to Christ in any way, let alone to see him as the author and finisher of any faith. Truth be told, if you're apart from Christ, your faith is in your own works the things you do with your own hands, your own dependence upon the sufficiency of your own flesh. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said of his works, I can give all that I have. I can even give up my body to be burned. But if I have not love, I've given nothing. In other words, if his life is not marked by a genuine love from God that comes into his life and works through his life by faith in God, it's all worthless, vain effort. The Bible tells us that our works that are accomplished apart from faith in Christ are to God like filthy rags. They're disgusting, useless garments before him. 
Friends, you may be the most generous giving person in the world, but unless you repent of your self-sufficiency and your self-righteousness and your pride and put your trust in Jesus Christ, you will die in your sins and you will go to hell. I commend to you Jesus Christ, the only true way of salvation, the only hope that we have to live true life everlastingly. Jesus tells us in his, his word that his burden isn't the great weight of the law that we put on ourselves and others to try to earn God's favor. His burden is light. His yoke is easy. And it is to trust in him, believing and knowing that he will see you through to the end. Will you trust in Jesus? Will you trust in him? Jesus alone can save you. And brothers and sisters, by faith, we must look to Jesus Christ alone for all that we desire in our lives, that we would have true communion with him. He truly is enough. We need not look to our own flesh. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful that as we come together to look to your word, you can remind us yet again that Christ truly is enough. That the faith that we have is a gift from you. That the spirit that dwells within us is a gift from you. And that the spirit is powerful and at work to make us holy like Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us a greater dependence upon your spirit, not turning to find our hope and our assurance in the works of the flesh. Father, we desire to walk in greater communion with you. And so we pray we can do so by knowing your word, by trusting your word, by abiding in your promises, that we would not be bewitched by the cunning temptations of the evil one. But that we would know the truth. We would rest in the truth. And in knowing and resting in the truth that we would have true experiential communion with you. We pray, God, that you would make us those kinds of people that by faith we would live and walk faithfully in a way that brings you great glory. And that brings to us great joy and satisfaction and peace and hope in Christ alone. We pray, Lord, for those who are hearing your word that are not believers in Christ, that you would impress upon their hearts the very conviction of sin that would lead to repentance and faith. We pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to dwell over their grave and call them to life in Christ. Father, we love you and thank you for your word and your work. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.